This episode of In Good Company is sponsored by Plum, a money management app and one-stop destination for managing your personal finances. Looking after your finances doesn't need to be complicated. And with Plum, it's easier than ever to take control of your money situation, no matter what your situation is. Using automated tools, Plum allows you to manage your money with minimal effort, whether that's saving money, opening a pension, or comparing and switching your energy bill and insurance providers. Plum actually adapts to your spending, automatically calculating how much you can afford to set aside at any given moment, so you'll never end up being caught short. If you've got a busy lifestyle, and really, don't we all, Plum also allows you to set some simple rules that do the saving for you, like its roundups feature, which rounds up all of your purchases to the nearest pound and puts those extra pennies straight into a savings pot meaning you'll be adding to your savings without even having to think about it. Download the Plum app for free now and try it out for yourself. Thank you very much to Plum. Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Otega Uagba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. To coincide with the publication of my book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is out tomorrow, every episode in this eight-part season is me speaking to various women about their relationships with and experiences of money and having those honest conversations that I think we're all dying to have but often don't get to. If you don't know much about my book, We Need to Talk About Money, here's a little overview. It's a part memoir, part cultural commentary, exploring my experiences with money over the years and what those experiences say more generally about our relationships with money and our position in society, particularly as that relates to women. So it's a mixture of the personal, stories from my childhood, adolescence and professional life, but it also touches on a lot of bigger issues, from class and privilege to feminism and race, beauty standards, toxic workplaces, how money can affect friendships, and above all, how people's experiences of those things might differ and impact their lives. You can pre-order it now in hardback, ebook and audio, with signed copies available from waterstones.com, and I've linked to all those retailers in the show notes. Pre-orders are vitally important to the overall success of a book, for various complicated publishing industry reasons that I won't bore you with here, but I'd so appreciate it if you did place a pre-order. On today's episode, I'm speaking to the journalist, essayist and media entrepreneur Anne Friedman, whose writing has been featured in publications including the New York Times, New York Magazine, the LA Times, The Gentlewoman and The Guardian. As well as co-hosting the long-running and phenomenally popular podcast Call Your Girlfriend, Anne also has a newsletter called the Anne Friedman Weekly, which is a curation of great writing and interesting gems from far-flung corners of the internet. I would highly recommend you sign up to it. It's a lovely treat to get in your inbox every Friday. Most recently, Anne and her podcast co-host, Aminata Uso, co-wrote a book called Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close, which, as the title suggests, is all about how we form and maintain our most treasured friendships and encouraging us to look beyond just romantic love when thinking about the most important relationships in our lives. Big Friendship was, unsurprisingly, an instant New York Times bestseller on publication last year and is out in paperback this week. 
I was so excited to get Anne on the show because she's someone who's always been very transparent about the nuts and bolts of working in media and being self-employed, especially when it comes to money. And I've learned so much from following her work over the years. As you'll hear, she's full of brilliant advice to offer on everything from negotiating your rates to protecting your intellectual property. We also spoke about the business of podcasting and the economics of being a writer and publishing a book and finished with a broader discussion about contemporary feminism and Anne's thoughts on recent developments like girlboss culture and the rise and fall of the popular women's co-working space, The Wing. Here she is. I'm going to jump straight in and talk about self-employment. How many years have you been self-employed for now? Almost a decade. Okay, so you're coming up to your 10-year anniversary. I should have a party, right? I should definitely have a party. Yeah, you should yeah. definitely do something to mark that, like 10 years of working for yourself. That's incredible, especially in this economy. That is amazing. But that's brilliant because that means that you're somebody who's very well positioned to offer insight into how you navigate that type of work successfully. And I guess I want to jump in with quite a big question, which is, What are sort of the biggest or the most important lessons you've learned about making a sustainable living as a freelancer or a business of one since you became self-employed nearly 10 years ago? There are so many. And I actually feel like I've had a few different phases of self-employment. There was this initial phase where I was I think I think I experienced it as just sort of being thrown into the deep end, flailing, trying to figure out whether I had the stamina to stay afloat or how to grasp for something that would keep me afloat. Contrary to what a lot of people think, I did not sit and meticulously plot what self-employment would look like. I was fired along with all of my colleagues and just sort of thrust into it. So there was a period of, I think, disorientation and While I had been working in media a long time, and I had a fair number of relationships as an editor, I really didn't have many at all as a writer. So I think that that first period was about me reintroducing myself maybe to people who I'd known as editor peers and kind of saying, okay, I'm doing this writing thing now. And that also coincided with a bit of luck because a couple of digital magazines, I guess I would call them, The Cut being the most prominent one, which is New York Magazine's, I guess for lack of a better term, gender section, which is what it was back then, were launching or relaunching. And so someone I'd known as an editor peer was like, hi, I'm editing at The Cut and maybe we could try doing a weekly column. And this, I'm getting to the actual advice, I swear, this bit of recurring <laughs> work was absolutely critical. I think if she had not made Made me that offer in the early days of my self-employment career, I would not have made it work. It was really critical to have the security of a recurring assignment. And the pay was astonishing to me at that point. I think I got $700 per column. And that is a decent rate by modern standards, but in 2012 was really, really good. And so that was the cornerstone of everything for me. And so the advice there about cultivating relationships and trying to get recurring work is one that I usually mention. I don't think that it has to be something as lovely or as prominent as your dream column writing job. I mean, again, some big, big luck on my end that they were relaunching as I was relaunching myself. 
but it is critical to just say, okay, no matter what happens, this is happening this week. And then I could kind of organize the rest of my schedule around that. I'd say, okay, let me work backward now for how much my rent costs. If I subtract this, how many more things do I need to write? And could I get recurring gigs for those things? And then I started doing you know, a little bit of math, which I think my brain was attuned to doing from all those years as an editor and working with magazine budgets. And that was really huge. My second bit of advice is to incorporate. I don't quite know the ins and outs of whether this is the same kind of advantage in the UK. Maybe you can fill me in. Are you incorporated? Mm. I am. I'm registered as a limited company, which I feel like is equivalent to Mm. what you're talking about in the US. For me, which I, I did not do that until late 2015, I want to say. So I'd already been making a living on my own for three years. And so many important things flowed from that decision. It allowed me to really say, okay, this is what I'm doing now. You know, it's not a thing I'm doing while I wait for my next day job. This is actually my career. It was psychologically important. At least here in the US, a bunch of stuff flows from that structurally. You know, I mean, it was a lot easier for me to get a business bank account, a business credit card, to really separate my finances in a way that, yes, was clearer when it came time to do my horrible headache inducing US taxes. However, (laughs) also really, really important for me because those accounts became a way for me to get a snapshot of what was happening with my business. And when everything was mixed up with my personal, sure, I tried to track expenses, but it, it was not the same thing. I really count that as a moment where I professionalized. And I want to thank you for saying self-employed instead of freelance, which is a term I hate and I would never use to apply to myself. Really? Can you explain why? Well, I think that when I look at how I make my money and why my career is sustainable, a lot of it has to do with being organized, being self-directed, ownership of things, you know, It's really more accurate to describe me as the owner and co-owner of several small media businesses at this point than it is to say that I am a freelancer who pitches and accepts assignments as they come in. Freelance to me does a disservice to the amount of organization and planning and structure that really goes into my career right now. I am also really interested in the fact that you said that you kind of see your self-employed career as happening in a couple of different phases, because I really relate to that. And I think the evolution of being self-employed is constant. And I'd love you to talk me through, I guess, what those different phases have been, perhaps as you've added new strands to your business, how those have operated. Oh, yeah. Isn't it fun to get old? I love it. Now I'm telling you about a decade of my work all of a sudden. (laughs) This is what people talk about when they say it goes by so quickly. You're a veteran. Yeah, yeah, right. So there's the phase one, let's call it flailing, for the first (laughs) maybe two to three years where my expenses were pretty low. I had like under market rate rent. I don't have any dependents. I don't support my parents or other relatives. So I I always want to foreground that, that I was really only feeding myself and taking care of my own health care, again, US problems, (laughs) and paying my own rent. And I think that that is critical. But it is what allowed me to survive the flailing years, where I really was more of a freelancer, honestly, I think maybe that's why those distinctions matter to me. Now, I was primarily writing for magazines, print and digital, 
if you look at the pie chart of my income at that point, it's all magazine writing. And then I started my newsletter in 2013 and Aminatu and Gina and I started Call Your Girlfriend in 2014. And I still include those kind of timeline points as part of the flailing era because there wasn't a business plan with those things. They were truly experiments with the newsletter. I missed editing. I was like, let's try this. Seems like a fun format. I'm ready to commit to doing it weekly because you know I love a weekly structure because of the aforementioned column. <laughs> and the podcast was like a thing we were going to do just to learn audio and share it with our friends. And none of those things paid. It was really all magazines. And then so we start to enter phase two when I incorporate. And that would be maybe like 2015 to maybe 2019. And there the pie looks a lot more diverse. There starts to be a little bit of advertising income from Call Your Girlfriend, not a ton. And we split everything three ways. And so I can't give you hard numbers, but I will say that it wasn't a meaningful part of my income. And same goes for my newsletter, you know, like together, I think these things may be added up to starting to cover a good portion of my rent, but any one thing was not easy to point to and say, that's my income. I was doing a little bit of public speaking, some with Aminatu and some solo, and those paychecks are huge. Like I'm not even getting big motivational speaker money, but I think the most I've been paid to just fly somewhere and talk for an hour is like nine or $10,000. Like it's bonkers how much you can get paid to speak. And that when the rest of your income looks like a couple hundred dollars here, maybe a thousand dollars there is huge. <laughs> so that becomes a bit of my pie where I did like one or two of those things a year. And all of a sudden, wow, it's really meaningful. I'm still doing a bit of magazine writing it feels, I would say, a little more chaotic if you look at the finances, but more professionalized. You know, I had like a few more tethers. If we're using this metaphor of me <laughs> being thrown in the deep end, I'm on a floaty right now. You know, it's not secure. Okay. <laughs> it's sagging in the middle. It's still a bit choppy. Exactly. But, but I am afloat. And then this latest phase, the one that I'm in now, which I would mark as maybe 2018, 2019 to present, is... My newsletter is a stable source of my income. I've got enough paying subscribers and enough advertisers every week that that feels like it is more than paying for the time I spend on it, which I, th I think is all I can ever ask. More than paying of the time I spend on something is a win. The podcast has a deal with essentially an advertising broker where okay. they guarantee us a certain amount of income per year for the right to sell ads against our show. And we commit to a certain number of episodes, which since our agreement with this kind of company has been 52 episodes a year. So the output is a lot. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> And my newsletter is also 52 a year. So I, it's like, you know, I'm not relaxing in the pool. This was the worst metaphor. I should not have picked <laughs> something that sounded so relaxing. <laughs> and then I also mark this era because in late 2018, Aminatu and I sold a book proposal together and spent most of mm. all of 2019 really writing a book. And Big Friendship came out in 2020. And mm. that marked the shift for me where in order to work on the book, I had to clear all the magazine writing from my plate. And so at this point in time, I do write for a select few editors who I love, honestly, a couple times a year, but I'm not pitching magazines. I'm really focused on books and then the podcast and my newsletter. And the pie looks like a lot cleaner, actually, kind of a little bit more like the very early flailing years, but I feel very much on some secure footing. 
And I'm not going to shame myself by extending the pool metaphor. I thought the metaphor worked, but I'm really glad that you've talked us through that journey because I think something that's really important for people to realize is that it takes a long time to cement these sources of income and to actually monetize things. Like for you to have been creating a podcast and a newsletter for as many years as you were and monetizing it slowly and making money, but this seems like there was like a real shift around 2018 to 2019. I think especially with podcasting now, and I'll talk more about podcasting as a business in a bit. I think there's this idea that it's like easy money and people don't realize that you have to really grow an audience and prove that you can get people coming back to listen week in, week out before you then actually go on to monetize. And actually, I think maybe the influx of cash into podcasting has kind of skewed that a little bit because I see a lot of podcasts launch, you know, celebrity back. Well, I'm just talking about the podcasting thing now. Let's just talk about it. But I see a lot of (laughs) celebrity back podcasts and there's a lot of like VC money flowing in and the podcast launch. And I wonder, is there an audience for this content? I'm curious as to what you think about how recent changes within podcasting have affected the kind of content that's being put out. Yeah, I agree with you that the saturation of the podcasting world, particularly as Hollywood types of all stripes, producers and, you know, celebrities and whatever get interested is, I don't know, I mean, I guess fascinating is maybe the right word, because Mm. statistically, again, and again, they show that one individual can only really be a consistent listener of maybe four to five weekly shows. Even if you are a podcast person, <laughs> capital P, capital P, those folks <laughs> like, you know, we have a limited number of hours. You've only got, you know, one commute typically, or you only have one hour a day in which you're preparing dinner when you always listen to podcasts. It's not like most people have infinite hours to just shoehorn in a new show. And so the attitude right now is all of these people are trying to be one of those four to five. And that's why they're all going to fail. That's why they all have to fail. There's just not listener ears for that long. And so one thing for me is like, as the industry grows up, it starts to sound to me a lot more the way that book publishing sounds or my least favorite parts of magazine editing, which tends to be just kind of parroting the same tropes or formula, making the same safe bets on people who look the same, And I mean both like demographically, but also kind of like in their approach to what they're talking about, their general orientation. The shows tend to all be structured the same way. It feels like it's getting safer the way that book publishing is like annoyingly safe (laughs) or the way that you see the same types of people on magazine covers again and again. No, definitely. And taking myself out of the equation as someone who creates a podcast and just talking about myself as a listener, I definitely felt like a couple of years ago, there was this sweet spot with me kind of having a roster of just like so many incredible podcasts that I love listening to. I felt like I didn't have enough time in the week to listen to all of them. Call Your Girlfriend was one, Another Round was one, The High Low in the UK was one. And then bit by bit, they've wrapped up or, you know, come to an end for their own various reasons. But I haven't found that I have been as engaged by the kind of newer offerings. And I often find myself being this kind of like, old fogey being like, oh, back in my day, which by the way, it was like three or four years ago, but (laughs) I really felt like there was a golden era podcasting, like the Dear Sugars podcast. I really had this great roster. I mean, these were all people who are monetizing the shows, but they had come into it with a goal of creating really engaging, listening and really engaging content. And I feel like now a lot of podcasts entering this space are just chasing the money. 
I think that's true. I think in a way, because now in order to meet the metrics for success that a lot of producers have. If you're launching a new show, the marketing budget is just so huge because, you know, also, as we all know, it's kind of hard to figure out what other podcast people are listening to. It doesn't feel quite like social media where you can kind of hope that something just catches on. You really have to pay to get people to pay attention. I hosted a short run show in 2018. I think it came out in 2018 or maybe I recorded it in 2018 and it came out in 2019. The MailChimp one. Exactly. It was interviews with a bunch of people about a time when they had to decide whether to quit or not. And it's like, I love talking about quitting. So anyway, but that show had this corporate marketing budget, which was huge, which was definitely like in the six figures or something alarming. I couldn't even believe it when I found out. I don't know the listener numbers. They don't share that with the lowly host, but I will guarantee you it, it comes nowhere near what Call Your Girlfriend gets just just because we are grandmothered in from a different era of podcasting. And I think that marketing budget requirement goes to what I was saying about the safety of the formula. Like, let's get yet another celebrity to talk to all their celebrity friends. The conceit has to be a lot more (laughs) overwrought, I guess, than just like two people whose ideas you like in conversation. That's because the budgets have gotten so big. And also, you know, in a positive way, like production values have gone up too. You know, there are some shows that I don't think could have happened four or five years ago just because people weren't thinking about the medium the same way. There are some good things too, but the bar is just really high. And I start to see these parallels between the safe and boring choices across all these media I work in. And I feel like a sulky teen when I I sit down and think about it. Something that I always love talking about and kind of love doing, if I'm being honest, is negotiating. And I think it's because being self-employed, you have to negotiate constantly. Like my approach to it now that I'm like literally negotiating what feels like week in, week out is very different to what it was five, six, seven years ago when I was working at a nine to five and you negotiate your salary like once every year or every two years or whenever you're (laughs) allowed to have a pay review. So I'd love to know what your approach to negotiating is and what the keys are to successfully advocating for yourself as, you know, I'm I'm using the word freelancer here as well. If you're not someone who, for example, has an agent, like how do you go about doing that? I will say that even if you have an agent, I think it's really smart to understand what you're worth and understand negotiation because I can't imagine just fully handing this off to an agent. I also love what you said. I mean, I think about this all the time about the week in and week out negotiation that you have to do as a self-employed person and how that compares to the once every couple of years negotiation you do as someone who's on staff. And it almost is like you and I have this really intense gym routine regularly. Like we are just like, we're, we're toned. We are like ready to go. And, and, you know, it's really different than saying I'm going to climb a mountain once every three years, you know? And so I feel that same way too. I don't know how good I was at it in the beginning, but I've certainly become comfortable with it. And I learned a lot from my friends who are not journalists on this front. I live in Los Angeles and many of my friends do things that are adjacent 
to film. One of my closest friends was for many years a motion graphics person. She makes and designs the titles on movies and television shows, or she would animate things like that. And she would negotiate all of her jobs. That's not an industry where agents mediate it. And she taught me about the concept of the fuck you rate, which is the number she would give to someone who had a job that she really didn't want to do, or maybe it was kind of inconveniently scheduled, but she would just name an absurdly high dollar amount. And if they met it, she would be like, great, I'm doing this because it's going to pay for me to take X number of weeks off, or it's going to allow me to accept underpaid work for someone I really want to work with. And if they don't want to pay me this, then like, who cares? I'm not sad to say no to it. And little things like that really wormed their way into my head thinking about, okay, like, how much do I really want this opportunity? How much do I need this opportunity? And, you know, and these days, my negotiations often encompass things that go far beyond money. You know, magazine contracts, at least with a lot of the large corporate owned magazines that I spent a lot of years writing for here in the US, have increasingly restrictive rights clauses. I've been really taken aback by that the couple of times I've written for US publications is there's a bit of a land grab going on with intellectual property rights. Like I've noticed that clause in contracts a lot and had it taken out a lot. But I don't think that's the case as much in the UK. Like I'd never encountered it before I started writing for US publications. Yes. This is also related to what we were saying about the podcast industry. You know, they have figured out that they can sell the rights to any story and they want to cut the writer out of that process. And sometimes I don't care about that. You know, if it's a profile of someone who... I am actually not interested in ever doing any other work with. (laughs) Who cares? But, you know, if it comes to my idea that I'm pitching, in what world would I pitch my idea for a feature and then have someone else own the full rights to it when they're not even paying that well? And so rights become part of the negotiation conversation. And, you know, learning to bring up things around travel and deadlines and expenses. I have definitely used assignments, particularly in my earlier self-employment years, as a way of financing my vacation. I'd say, hey, like, okay, I will take this assignment, but only if you fly me there and pay for an additional night in the hotel. You can pay me this low rate, but you're going to pay me extra through expenses. So thinking holistically to beyond the dollar amount is something I've really learned to do. Yeah. I agree with that. I want to talk about intellectual property, actually, because, again, something that I've learned from following you over the years is the importance of protecting your IP as a creative. I think you and Aminatu are your co-host for Call Your Girlfriend, are really hot on that. I know that you guys trademark Shine Theory. I know that you've had some scuffles, <laughs> I use that word, <laughs> with people who've kind of tried to encroach on that. And yeah, I'd love you to just kind of explain why that's so important to you and more generally for creative people to be aware of the value of their IP. I love this question. And part of me just wants to repeat everything you just said, but without the question mark, it is very important for creative people (laughs) to be aware of the value of the work that they create. And I've been reflecting on this recently because I realized at some point that I'm the child or the daughter and granddaughter on both sides of my family of small business owners. And I actually think that that informed how I feel about this quite a bit. You know, my mom's father owned like a lumberyard and building materials store. I don't know what else to call it, like a hardware store and building materials store. And my father's side of the family owns family insurance business. And I really think about the ways that 
the men in my family in particular saw the value of owning something, even if it was a small town business. And I have seen firsthand, I mean, this gets to other things like related to generational wealth, whiteness, and the disintegrating US social policy net, whatever. It's a bigger, <laughs> it's a bigger question than this. But I have firsthand felt the benefits of people in my life owning things. And really, I don't know, I think that that has crept in. And it's why, for example, Call Your Girlfriend, I think, is still independent, even though maybe at some point along the line, we could have eased our business lives by essentially going under the umbrella of a bigger podcasting company. There hasn't yet been a situation where I sell the rights to an article I wrote for an absurd amount of Hollywood money. I haven't ever really capitalized on this in the sense of selling it yet. But when I think about what sets me apart from someone who is just pitching articles and accepting assignments, why I say self-employed instead of freelance, it's because I have this long-term ownership stake in the things that I do. And it is not only a possibility to sell them, but it's a possibility to scale them up or like accept investment or, you know, in the case of my newsletter, decide I want to charge more from subscribers or raise the advertising rates. And all of that stuff saying that this is my property. This newsletter is my intellectual property that I'm creating week over week. Also allows me to feel this measure of pride in it, I think, and control over it in a way that I just, I just don't feel the same way when I'm accepting assignments for someone else. I might enjoy it. I might feel like, hey, I really love this article I wrote. I love our collaboration, but it's different. It doesn't feel like I'm building something for the future in the way it does when I think about the stuff that I own. Totally. I couldn't agree more. And I think there is something for me as well. I mean, first of all, I'm like, in terms of skills that I have, I can write and come up with ideas. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a plumber. I'm like, my ideas are what I have. They are how I pay my bills. And I feel like a sense of ownership over them, not to kind of put myself down, but I'm like, this is all I have. So I have to make sure that I own it. I just want to say that I think that we are encouraged by the way social media works in particular to not think of these things as property we own. I think it's incredible that you put food on your table through your own ideas. I'm like, that sounds like a sorcery to me. I love it when you when you <laughs> phrase it that way. But you know, if you are looking at Instagram all day and thumbing through people sharing and resharing without attribution or ideas that like come from who knows where and the repost culture of the internet says that this stuff is just all out there and you don't own anything. And I think about the way that is used to exploit like, you know, like black teens on TikTok or like people who are like you really putting incredible ideas out into the world. We are conditioned by big tech companies to not think of this stuff as valuable when it very much is. A quick word from our episode sponsor, Plum. I already mentioned that the Plum app is brilliant for helping you to set and achieve your savings goals. But did you also know that Plum actually helps you to invest your money as well? You can start investing through the Plum app from as little as £1, choosing the type of funds that you'd like to invest in whether those are tech giants like Apple and Facebook, or clean and green investments and in companies selected for their social responsibility. Once you've selected your funds, Plum does all the rest for you. So all you have to do is sit back and let your money work. Download the Plum app for free now and try it out for yourself. Please note, your capital is at risk if you choose to invest. And now, back to the show. 
I want to move on slightly and talk about transparency in general. I mean, this has already been a very transparent conversation, and that's partly why I wanted to speak to you on the podcast, because you're someone that I see as being very transparent about money, especially within professional context. Over the years, I've seen you regularly disclose the amounts you've earned. Like, I know you put out this annual pie chart that divides your earnings over the year, which I just think it's a really cool thing. And I'm curious as to where that attitude came from. That's a good question. I mean, I think that my dear friend and colleague, Aminatu So, has really modeled that transparency for me. I don't know. And I still have that icky feeling often of, oh, am I really going to tell people this? But at the end of the day, it's like, who are you protecting by keeping quiet about this stuff? I don't know. It's very, very difficult for people who are just starting out in media in particular to figure out what others are getting paid. There's also this thing that's going on where the more prominent you are, the higher your rates are. You know, it's not like a magazine pays X amount for a feature across the board. It's like, no, no, your your rates accrue with your level of prominence. And so if the people at the top are not being transparent, we have like a micro version of the CEO pay problem where this divide just grows bigger and bigger between people who are doing the same kind of hours, but getting paid less. And so I don't know, some of it comes from, I guess, maybe a political orientation. Some of it is also, I think about my decision making process, which is to say that no money is completely unfraught or uncomplicated. Every financial decision, you are usually partnering with someone who you don't 100% agree with, or you are shilling a product you don't 100% love, or, you know, there's compromises related to all things that have to do with money, more or less. For me, if I can't be transparent about those trade-offs, it makes me feel ickier about taking the money. You know, I feel better if I can say, well, listen, in the way that we do these episodes of the podcast, kind of about the business. If I can't say, like, I don't 100% love all of these advertisers, but if we made a hard and fast rule, that we only accepted money from places where there's no toxic work culture, we wouldn't be able to pay ourselves at all for this podcast, you know, because capitalism, like, I just feel better saying it out loud. And then I can make the compromise decision that this world necessitates. That makes sense. I'm intrigued that you said that you sometimes feel a bit icky about it, because I've never sent obviously, this is kind of as an external bystander, I've never sensed that from the way you share because it's so confident. And I'd love to know, has your transparency around money been a largely positive experience or have you ever gotten like a negative response or even regretted sharing that much? Have you ever had like a vulnerability hangover, which is, I love that term. Has that ever happened to you? I can't think of a specific case. I mean, I will say that I never experience any regret when it comes to a one-on-one conversation, a private conversation, an email where someone's like, hey, how much did they pay you? And I will also say that I have had editors offer me a certain dollar amount and then say, but don't say this publicly, that that's how much we've offered you because they know they can't offer it to everyone. So I know that other people are paying attention to the fact that I talk about this. Maybe I will feel more like that as I continue to you know, make more money, frankly. I don't feel any shame about saying, 
I mean, looking at my income, especially in the early days of being freelance, I was like, you know, no one's jealous of my overall number here. Like, who am I hurting by talking about this? <laughs> and I think that the more secure that I grow in my industry and in my own personal finances, and just given the yawning inequality, like in the industry I work in and in the world at large, it becomes, I worry that I am bragging or something. Because often the only salaries we know about are the super, super rich. You know, we know how much like Jeff Bezos is worth or whatever, but we mm. don't know how much the highest paid person in our industry is really making and how they make it. And so I can't think of a specific vulnerability hangover moment, but I do always feel like when I told you how much I got paid for my column way back in the day, I had a little inside cringe and then just said it because my brain has decided that the value of saying it is greater than not saying it. Why did you cringe? I think that I know that a lot of people don't get paid that even in 2021. In some ways, it already feels like a relic. I am a media relic because I have ever been paid that much to write on the internet. I am in dialogue with people who are just starting their careers, and I know the abysmal rates that they are offered. And I don't want to sound like the Gen Xers who are kind of one career step ahead of me who would say things like, oh, well, you know, I don't work for less than $2 a word when I was really trying to scrape together a living. And I would be so angry, just like, must be nice, you know, <laughs> must be nice to be you to have your standards. I don't want to inspire that feeling in others. And I hope it always comes with a tone of I'm saying this for transparency rather than saying it's what I deserve or you don't deserve it. Yeah, I was about to say that I think you should give yourself a little, a lot more credit, actually, because I think context, as always, is very important when we're having these sorts of conversations. And it never comes across like that for me. And as I say, honestly, navigating self-employment this past, I've been self-employed now for like five or six years. Having you talk so openly about it so much has been really helpful for me in, in figuring out how I how I navigate it. Something I do know because of your transparency, I think I either heard you speak about this, or it might have been your co-host and co-author Aminati So, is that you guys got a fairly large book advance, and deservedly so, I should say, for your book that came out last year, Big Friendship. And I would really like to know whether you felt any pressure around that, like specifically around what you had paid for it when it came to publication and promotion, like to kind of make good on the amount that you were paid. <laughs> I was really with you. And then you took a left turn. I was like, I did feel a lot of pressure, but it was pressure in my personal life to spend this big check I was getting on something that was going to be meaningful. As a self-employed person, my work is just like week over week, month over month, you know, a lot of small checks that add up. That is still true all these years later. I mean, it's steadier, it's more reliable, but the big payday, I mean, this book is the only like big payday I've ever had. And I want to say something about the way nonfiction book payments are done, at least here in the US. I don't know how they're structured elsewhere. But when you have a publisher agree to buy your nonfiction book proposal, you are paid in four chunks. The first quarter, when they agree that they're going to buy it, the second quarter when they accept your draft, the third quarter when the hardback comes out, and the fourth quarter when the paperback comes out. So as of this recording, I have been paid three-fourths of my half of the rate that Aminatu and I were paid for the book, even though we signed on to do this at the end of 2018. So 
If you think about the nonfiction book publication arc as like a three-year cycle, you really have to spread the payment out over that long. That's part of it. Now, for me, a self-employed person who is really thinking about my work hours versus money, those early payments really did just directly compensate the hours we spent working on the book. You know, payments one and two were money that we lived on, money that we used to fly to be in the same place so we could write together because Aminatu lives in New York and I live in Los Angeles, money that we spent on an external editor and a fact checker and all kinds of expenses. Fact checking. Oh my God. So, so I just had to jump in there because fact checking is expensive and people <laughs> do not realize that these are things that have to come out of an author's pocket. Or certainly I didn't realize until, I don't know if you remember that whole kerfuffle around Naomi Wolf's I book do indeed. <laughs> last year. And I sent my agent an email at like four in the morning titled fact check. I was like, how does this happen? When does it happen? Because I was so terrified writing a nonfiction book, I was so terrified of ending up in a in a similar position. There are a lot of invisible costs that if you want to write a nonfiction book to a certain standard, the writers are bearing those costs. And it's also true of publicity on the back end. You know, we paid for someone with a lot of podcast booking experience to book us on podcasts to promote the book because we knew oh, right. that publishers are very adept at pitching the morning television shows and public radio. They are not adept at pitching anything new media. Sorry, love my marketing professionals in the book <laughs> publishing world, but like not their area of expertise. And so we paid a big chunk of money to someone who had a specific podcast booking expertise to get our book on all these shows because it became clear we we would not be going on tour because of a global pandemic. All of this to say that when you look at that number that someone receives for a nonfiction book advance, even before you remove agents fees and taxes, which are significant, you really have to think about it as the everything check. Publishing is such a casino. They're placing bets all the time. And they placed a big bet on us because we have a podcast and they thought with a platform like that, we could sell a lot of copies. And for me, I'm finally getting around to your question about the pressure of this dollar amount. For me, I wanted the book to do well enough that I could write my next book with enough money to see me through that process, like successful enough that publishing would place another bet on me. I am so glad you've said that because that's how I feel constantly with my books. I'm like, I want my books to do well enough that I'm paid a decent enough advance that I can afford to write more books without having to kill myself doing it and take on a million other jobs around the side or do a huge amount of freelancing, that sort of thing. And it's less about the kind of ego of the dollar amount and more just how can I continue to have a sustainable living as a writer? Yes, exactly. Exactly that. And so I did want the book to do well in the sense that we had spent more than a year of our lives on it and I wanted it to be in the world and for people to read it and engage with it. So there's that motivation. And I knew I wanted to write more books because I really was interested in the writing process and about how it felt different than shorter form writing that I'd done in the past. And it's a skill that I want to get better at. That's a feeling I really chase as a self-employed person. What do I want to learn how to do or learn how to do better? And how can I get paid <laughs> to learn how to do something better? And so the book fell into that category. 
But I don't really care. I mean, God, I can't believe I'm about to say this. I don't really care if Simon and Schuster makes their money back on our book. <laughs> like that's not my priority. <laughs> it's really not. And it did well enough, I think, to make them feel okay about the large number of chips they slid over onto our square in the publishing casino. <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever see a royalty check from it because, you know, when you get a big advance, my agent describes it like a hole in the ground. You know, every sale is a little cl- clump of dirt filling the hole in the ground. And once the hole is full, then you get maybe some some royalties. And I just, I don't know if that day will ever come. And I'm okay with that. That initial check or those four checks, that's what it's going to be. And I'm perfectly happy with that. Yeah, totally. When I kind of asked about a pressure around making good on that investment earning out, it was less about whether or not Simon and Schuster, who are like a multi, multi-million dollar <laughs> yeah. company, can afford that and more of the sort of what that then means for your future yes. as a writer, which is something that I constantly have at the back of my mind. I want to talk about feminism. <laughs> what does feminism have to do with money? I hear you ask. Wow. Well, <laughs> I think it's fair to say that you and I both exist in this space, which is media, feminism, the online world, journalists who wear their feminism very proudly on their sleeves. And often it becomes part of our work and part of our public profiles, which can be a really rich and inspiring space to be in and a source of genuine, I mean, I know that I found it to be a source of genuine community, but also feminism is big business these days. And that can lead to a lot of pretty weird dynamics. You had an episode of Call Your Girlfriend a couple of years ago, which really still sticks in my memory, where you talked about millennial pinkwashing, which I found to be a really interesting concept. And I think at the time, my like first book was out, I might have DM'd you on Instagram. I was like, ah, it's literally pink. book is millennial pink. <laughs> I, know, I was like, shit. But I think you had a much bigger idea essentially with that term, which I think is a brilliant term. So I'd love if you could kind of explain how you define that. It is not our term, speaking of intellectual property. Pinkwashing is how I would describe maybe a magazine list of like best companies for working mothers. And in fact, like the companies are actually terrible for all mothers below the executive level, you know, like that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Millennial Pink, that coinage belongs to, I think, Veronique Highland at The Cut. And in between, maybe we do take some credit for the hybrid of millennial pinkwashing. So, you know, I'm not 100% certain about that. This feels like a lifetime ago because the internet moves so fast. But it's this idea that companies will adopt a pseudo-feminist, pseudo-political posture in order to bolster their own brand without really making a meaningful structural effort to live those values. Hence the pinkwashing, you know, it's a coat of paint on an otherwise unchanged institution. I mean, pinkwashing, much like greenwashing, which is the kind of eco version of this, is not new, you know, decades old, as old as the feminist movement, I might argue, which is to say, (laughs) a long, long time it has been around. (laughs) But the millennial version is just like very easy to spot because there are some design markers of it as well. You know, I mean, not only that color of millennial pink, but like aesthetically, it looks like the interior of the wing and it has a fat serif font. And there are these markers that like, hey, you know, like we're not like other brands, we're, we're a cool brand. And maybe we have a young woman who's our founder. And, you know, you want to support a woman run company, don't you? And I think that being a bit more critical and saying like, great, we love it that women start businesses. We love it that young women start businesses. We love that you purport to have these values. But 
How are you living them? Where's your money? How are you sacrificing for this value? I mean, I think about that a lot is like, what are you saying no to? Or what opportunities are you turning down to stay aligned with your values? It's really easy to say yes to opportunities that align with your values and bolster them. But how are you keeping that in check on the other end and declining to work with manufacturers that are terrible? Or how are you being transparent about the places you're falling short? Those are the questions that I would be asking of those brands. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there is and was, I mean, it's kind of supposedly coming to an end, but the whole girl boss era, which I have a lot of thoughts on, which aren't entirely negative. Like I feel like that concept and era gets a pretty short shrift, but I actually understand why a lot of women were attracted to it. But I mean, yeah, it's definitely flawed. And I'm glad that you brought up the wing, actually, because I think for me and for a lot of people, that was probably the kind of apotheosis of that sort of trend, girl boss feminism and potentially millennial pinkwashing. And I'd actually love to know what your thoughts are on the wing and how it played out and more kind of like what your thoughts were, if you can cast your mind back, what your thoughts were on the wing before the events of last summer and what your thoughts are on it now. And I say this as someone who was given a complimentary membership and was a membership for a period of time. And I've written about that experience in my book, like I'm coming at this from a pretty neutral perspective. Yeah, and I think I have a fairly neutral perspective as well. I was never a member of the wing. And I would like to tell you that that was for reasons of values or something, or somehow I knew that this was a foot, but mostly it's like, I'm not that interested in a private members club. Like I looked at the business model and I was like, wait, so I still buy the coffee here and I sit in a cramped room. <laughs> How is that different than a normal coffee shop? <laughs> you know, I mean, some of it is just my like Midwestern practicality of like, what am I really paying for here? And some of it, <laughs> some of it is, I think that the work that I do I didn't see much of a use for it. I work in audio and I'm doing a lot of telephone interviews. Like I'm a reporter. It doesn't make sense to me to spend a significant amount of my time in a social space like that. So some of it was just practical. Like this doesn't fit my needs or my life. And I do think that I, even at the founding of The Wing, had a little bit of skepticism about the branding, for lack of a better term. I mean, I don't think it's any better or worse than any other kind of branding. But honestly, like for me, I was not like, oh, this is an enticement to get me over the fact that I don't really need this, which I think for some people it was, you know, I mean, branding gets short shrift, but like it's how people and businesses signal what they're all about. And for a lot of women, that branding signaled like you can come here and be a version of your full self that maybe you feel like you can't be elsewhere in the world. I agree with you that I don't fully dismiss, you know, I think what we're now calling like the girl boss era. I think that there's value there. And it's understandable that women would want to claim agency and saying like, okay, it's on me to found or change or do or pursue. And even though I think now we're in this era of like, oh, yes, but structurally, here's what's going on. And I think that right now the counter narrative is somehow about the girl boss mentality, not really acknowledging structural barriers to women that is also not like a monolithic group. And I think that's part of the critique as well. But barriers to women really doing what they want to do in this world. And I think that one of the reasons why it was successful was because of this greater context. And that context being like, okay, we want to grant some permission to basically do all the stuff that we've been talking about on this episode today, like to 
claim the fact that you have a business and claim the fact that your ideas have value. And I agree with you long game. I think that we're going to see that there are positives from that era as well. And I'm actually happy we're critiquing it in a more robust way. The internet is so all or nothing. It's like, we love it. We hate it. You know, it's really hard to say like, okay, we love some of it. And some of it was really bad. You know, it's like, there's not really a place for that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I always watch the wing really closely right from even before it launched because I was running like a small community called Women Who which was very much in that space it was like the wing was kind of doing the same thing as I was doing but like on steroids with like 120 million dollars of VC funding so I was always very aware of what they were doing and followed the whole trajectory there are some very obvious critiques that I, I won't even bother rehashing here because I think we've all kind of seen them but something that I did notice I think it was criticised and under more scrutiny because it was female-run and female-centric, though I don't buy the idea that that was the only reason because people would kind of say, oh, but like Soho House and WeWork don't get this kind of shit. And it was like, but also Soho House and WeWork aren't building their house on this kind Mm. of political ideology of feminism, which is inherently about equality. And they're not using that as a marketing tool. So like, it's not a fair comparison. It's not called So Justice House. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, So Her House is what it is. It's like, we're for kind of rich, creative people and they don't try and pretend to be anything else. 100%. Whereas if you put yourself forward as a company which is values driven and one of those values has to be equality because feminism is about equality, then that opens you up to a whole world of scrutiny that I think was fair. But I do also think, especially observing the reactions on social media throughout the course of its life, I don't want to say it's over, we'll talk about that in a second, but there was a real glee, I think, reserved for any of its missteps and transgressions in a way that I found very gendered. And I wonder what you think about that. Like, Do you think that they had a harder time of it because they were women? I think that that's certainly part of it. It's hard to separate these strands. I mean, I think another part was that they had been a real media and social media darling. And I read a lot of it as like a class backlash, like a warranted class backlash where people who saw the beautiful photos on Instagram and then went and looked at the membership rates and felt and were shut out, had very valid resentment about that when the messaging is about inclusivity. And then so what open to all. Yes, exactly. And then so when the opportunity presents itself for critique, this crack that had always been there in the supposed feminist foundation of the business opened up. And you're right that it's gendered, but I tend to fall more along the lines of what you were saying initially that like, Soho House is a great example, not really pretending at anything bigger or better than just, you know, a place for rich, beautiful people to do rich, beautiful things. But, you know, actually, WeWork is kind of an interesting middle ground comparison because, you know, they did have some like weird utopian messaging around what it meant to be a member of that community. (laughs) And it was not gendered. But I do think that they're coming in for some similar critique I got high and watched the Hulu documentary. I know. I know all about this. So, so yeah, I think that you're right. And this is also, though, why talking about racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, this stuff is often not the biggest headline about something like this. You know, it's like these are little intimations and nuances sometimes that emerge when the critique is ostensibly about something else or when the pile on is happening for a different reason. And this is, you know, again, goes back to what I was saying about 
I really wish there were more room for nuance in the way that the it's why I love podcasts because you and I are now having a nuanced conversation about this in a way that I don't actually think we could in like an Instagram back and forth, for example. No, or in a 280 character tweet, which is where a lot of the discourse Mm. about it went down. And that's just inherently a very limited format. I want to wrap up by asking you a few quick questions. Think of this as a sort of rapid fire round, but you are welcome to go into more detail if you'd like to. Um, Just about your kind of general attitude to money. So the first question I have for you is, what is the best money decision you've ever made? I think I'm going to say incorporating because of all the decisions that flowed from that. It was more of a mindset shift. It's a hard one. Best and worst are really hard for me. (laughs) Well, I was about to ask you, what is the worst money decision you've ever made or your biggest money mistake? Well, it's funny that we had this long conversation about my 10-year self-employment journey because prior to that, before I got the job that launched me into self-employment, I had this brief failed start as a freelancer. And I would use that term (laughs) for this phase where I quit my editing job in DC because I did not want to live in Washington, DC anymore. I had very little plan. I had fewer connections than I'd had before. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to wing this self-employment thing. And I really am lucky that a day job crossed my radar when it did, which was only about two months later, because I had already in the span of two months burned through my meager savings. And, And even though that day job paid me very well, It took me a long time to recover from a two-month leapt-before-I-was-ready flirtation with being self-employed. And so it's, again, like best, worse, or hard. But like I think I could have capitalized on having a salary a lot better if I hadn't leapt so quickly into being freelance and maybe if I'd just gone from one day job to the next. That makes sense. This is quite a big question. Is this where you thought you'd be financially at this point in your life? Baked into this question about where you thought you'd be, the question is when? When in my life am I asking? Like a decade ago. Yeah, okay. A decade ago. Okay, so I'm doing much better than I thought I would be a decade ago. For all of my talk about how important ownership has been and, you know, slow building the podcast and the newsletter, I don't think I had any expectation that they would pay off financially. I think that if you'd asked me a decade ago, my greatest aspiration would be that magazine assignments were flowing to me easily and that I was basically doing exactly what I was doing a decade ago, but with a higher pay rate per word. And when I think about that now, I'm just like, that sounds so unstable. My life right now is like calmer. I'm in more control. I'm more creatively excited because I have control over these long-term projects. It is both on a work level, like a day-to-day work level and at a financial level, you know, just so much better than I would have predicted. And my final question is, and I'm really, really curious to hear the answer to this. What are your financial goals for the future, say for like the next five years? Well, I want to sell another book and I would like to sell it at a rate that enables me to take as much time as I want on it. I don't think I'm envisioning that as like three years, but I do want to feel like I'm not scrambling to do it. I know that this is a thing rich people always say, but like time, the greatest resource. (laughs) So a financial goal, (laughs) seriously, a financial goal is to have more parts of my work life look and feel the way the newsletter does, which is to say that I am well compensated for all of the hours I spend on it. I feel a lot of creative control and the work is still exciting to me. And right now that looks like, like I said, selling a new book, 
that really is my aspiration for all of the little pieces of work that I do. I don't actually think that continuous forever growth is part of that goal. I have reached a place in my career and my personal finances, which is to say, like, I have a partner who is a like salaried white man. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I like don't I, I really am feeling like my goals involve figuring out how I want to be as a person with financial security moving forward. And that's really different than like just continuously making more money. It also involves kind of reconceptualizing the risks I take with my work and how I am investing in myself and in the other people and causes that I care about. Like there's a lot of interesting questions to me that are opened up by security. And it's a different set of questions than like, how do you build a career and learn to make ends meet as a self-employed person? I think I am maybe entering a newer phase unless something really destabilizing happens, which it always could with money. I don't know. I'm thinking a little bit differently and I'm excited to kind of do the mental exercise of what might it be like if you asked me the same questions 10 years from now. Maybe I will do my self-reflective exercise after all. <laughs> do it, do it, do it. And just more generally, I mean, that sounds like a really exciting place to be where you are now. So I'm really, really pleased for you and also very excited to read the next book. <laughs> that is all we have time for today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and it has been an absolute pleasure to speak to you and thank you for being so open and transparent. A pleasure. I love your work. I love the show. A really lovely way for me to spend an hour and a half of my time. This has been a joy. And that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then I think you'll really enjoy my book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about money and is available now in hardback, ebook and audio with signed copies available from waterstones.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegiwagba that's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost. See you next week. Yeah, yeah.